and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 8th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. And before we go further, I would like to say a very happy birthday to one of our listeners, John Rubenstein. Oh, yeah. Great guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Happy birthday. Do we know if he's on the East Coast or West Coast these days? Oh, West, I believe. I, yeah. You know, he was uh, Charlie the Chocolate Factory for a while, so mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if he was doing some other stuff here in New York or if he's back on the West Coast. So, yeah, happy birthday, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good to have you in our lives. Yes. And uh, also we have some other really uh, fun things that we should mention at the top of the show. Of course, Coming up this Thursday, Michael, what are you going to be doing? You hanging out with Groff? <laughs> Groff sauce, yes. Groff sauce. <laughs> you know, he explained that. Uh, did you see? Um, he was asked that on one of the talk shows that he's been on recently. John has made the rounds of all the major talk shows. And, and one of the uh, hosts asked him where that came from. And he, he said it, it came from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as the origin of it, uh, Jonathan wasn't sure, but he said, if, if, if you recall, there was a, a point where awesome sauce. Awesome sauce, yeah. Yeah. Was a, uh, was a, so, so I guess that was Lynn's uh, you know, personalized version of it. Anyway, Jonathan is, of course, in the hit revival of Little Shop of Horrors off Broadway and the phenomenal film hit frozen Two, and uh he's he's got so many great credits and really one of one of our most wonderful actors and singers and one a new york times profile on john recently described him as beloved by his fans and his colleagues and i think that's really true so we're going to be talking to him at ripley greer studios on thursday uh from 4.45 to 6. And if you, uh, we do have some uh, seating available still for the general public. It's mainly a drama desk event, but we're inviting the general public as well. So if you email michael at broadwaystars.com uh, ASAP, uh, I think, <laughs> you know, we'll probably be able to get you in. And I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, Michael and Peter, if I'm Correct here. You you guys are not much on the Twitter. You don't you don't do very much Twitter stuff, do you? No, I finally got Instagram, but I, but I'm not even using that. You, you, you jumped right over the Twitter to the Instagram. The Instagram's hot with the kids these days. They love the oh, pictures. Okay. They love the pictures, <laughs> and and that's a good format for you because you're a great photographer. So. Oh, I thank you. So if if I you know I'm going to ask you some some Twitter trivia. If I asked you who Bright Monster was, would you know who Bright Monster is? Not I. No. <laughs> Alex Brightman. Oh. Ah. <laughs> and Alex Brightman got a puppy, and he's been posting pictures of his puppy on, on Twitter for the last couple of months, and it is cuter than Baby Yoda. Well, maybe not as cute as, cute as Baby Yoda, but we'll see. <laughs> so uh, let's see what else we got going here. Oh, Forbidden Broadway is uh, moving over to the York. So, uh, Michael, you want to tell us more about this? This is uh, happening in... Uh, 
This is happening coming up in January, January. just a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the show was at the Triad uh, just very recently. I'm not exactly sure why why they left there, but regardless, they're go they are going to the York. And it's a really nice kind of uh, situation there because at the moment, the, the, the show at the York is anything can happen in the theater, the musical world of Maury Yeston, which is... Uh, conceived and directed by Gerard Alessandrini, who conceived and directed Forbidden Broadway. And then they're going to go right from that to Forbidden Broadway with the same cast, the same excellent cast that they had at the Triad. And this is a really, really funny, wonderful, clever edition of Forbidden Broadway with lots of very recent material uh, tackled as well as you know, some old favorites but but really this one has a, um, a very high percentage of, of new stuff i would say uh i remember one of the highlights is the fossey verdon sequence that really seemed to go over extremely well i forget peter did you see it at the triad uh-huh yeah and i agree with that um yeah. i also thought the judy garland impersonation was excellent Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot in it that is very, very enjoyable. So that I think this will be the first time uh, for the show at the York. And it sounds like a a nice fit for to me. Um, mm -hmm. So, yes, that, that you should definitely put that on your I know some people were disappointed at uh, the closing uh you know, that the run at the triad was so short for whatever reason. Uh, but now's your chance to see it. Well, as a lot of people have said to me, too, um, I'm, I'm not a drinker and um, I hate to have to go there and, and pay oh, for a yeah. drink, you know, so so this eliminates that um, issue if indeed it is an issue for you. Yeah, I've been hearing that so often lately, but I I, I, I mean, there are so many places that have that. Uh, I guess uh, there are just a lot of audience members who are not used to going to anything other than a regular theater. Right. Yeah. So yeah. this this serves that need. Right. Well, I, you know, I'm not a drinker at all. And when I go to those places that have two drink minimums, I always get two club sodas for a ridiculous price. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, for me, it's Diet Coke. But anyway, yeah. So uh, let's clean up a few other things that um, uh, I've been asked about uh, a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, including Michael and Peter asked me after the last show. Uh, is that we are going to continue into 2020 for Broadway Radio thanks to the Yay. support of everybody uh, at Patreon and the handful of advertisers who have come out and, and supported uh, Broadway Radio. So I want to let you know that you don't have to worry about that. And if you get a new device for Christmas, remember to resubscribe because that's the time that we lose most of our subscribers and we get them back in February, March as the new season rolls around mm. and people are like, oh, I got a new thing and I forgot to resubscribe and things like that. <laughs> and so don't forget that plan to do that you know um and with that why don't we move on to the answer to last week's trivia the question was in the 60s a successful broadway songwriting team took on a world famous property and turned it into a musical but they weren't allowed to use many of the property's famous characters in the 70s this same team when adapting another world famous property had the same experience all over again Who's the songwriting team? What are the two properties and the two musicals? Well, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams had It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman in 1966, which, though based on the DC Comics and popular 50s TV series Superman, they couldn't get the rights to Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Lex Luthor, and Mr. Mixelplick. So the 1970s show, Applause, wasn't allowed to use Addison DeWitt, 
Bertie Coonan, Max Fabian, or Miss Caswell from All About Eve, the source material. So, Tony Janicki, after a humiliatingly sixth-place finish for the previous week, <laughs> was back on the beam and finished first. <laughs> he was followed by Josh Israel, Mike Meany, Kerr Lockhart, the newly engaged Alyssa Marr, Congrats, Alyssa. Congrats, Ducks Strassler, soon to be Broadway's cutest married couple. As Sondheim once wrote, hey there, you two, when's the wedding? Uh, well, maybe not so soon. They haven't set a date. Anyway, after they came Fred Abramowitz, Allison R. She likes only to use her initial. Jack Leshner, Ingrid Gammerman, Ron Fassler, Brigadude, and Deb Popple. Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the story on applause is that initially they did not have the rights. And then uh, I think Betty Comden wrote that at some point they did get the rights. But it was just too late. But it was too late. Right. right. They, they mm-hmm. had gone too far and they right. said they said, screw it. The hell of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Back on the beam. So uh, following up there, was it Nadia Comaneci and Olga Corbett? So. <laughs> or maybe I remember Harry, them. Maybe Harry Townsend. Did he get his last uh, stand? Mm. <laughs> so uh, Peter and Michael got over to see Harry Townsend's last stand at uh, City Center. So Peter, why don't you start us off with Harry Townsend? Well, um, this is a, a, a story of an 85-year-old man, Harry Townsend. Um, his wife has died. He lives alone in a nice house in Vermont. Very nice set. Terrific um, set by Lauren Halpern. And, um, well, you know, 85, it's it's adding up and things aren't as good as they used to be. And he occasionally falls and he occasionally forgets that somebody has died. Um, he thinks somebody is in the room um, next to him and that person was not there to begin with. Um, all that type of stuff. So there's no question that he's failing. And uh, his son, who is in his 50s, is uh, very concerned. Now, one can say he may not be so concerned because he hasn't visited his father a year and a half, but he does live on the other coast. And the other thing is, there is a daughter who pops in. Uh, She lives locally and she pops in from time to time. However, she's going to be moving soon and she's not going to be able to pop in. And so um, that's a big problem here. Well, um, I have to say that the producer, Dennis Grimaldi, invited me to a reading some uh, months ago. And... um, I said to him afterwards, gee, I would like the story to turn out to be exactly different from the way it does turn out. Mm-hmm. And um, and anyway, it didn't happen. Uh, the playwright, George Eastman, either didn't hear that or didn't agree with that, or uh, not that he has any responsibility to pay attention to me. But nevertheless, uh, the story played out in a way that um, I would not like to see it play out. That's all I'm going to say. But um, I, <laughs> it's very hard for me to talk about this without divulging what really happens. But um, that was my problem with the play. That, And I do think that the way the play is written now would have passed muster many decades ago. It would have made sense for um, people in their 80s Um, in the 50s or 60s. But uh, the generation that's now 85 years old, I think has a very different outlook on life and a very different feeling about um, nursing homes and et cetera, et cetera. So so it wasn't satisfying to me. 
nevertheless, Len Cariou, um is playing the older man, and he is quite terrific. It's not that good a part for Craig Bierko because he's essentially the straight man. Um, Len Cariou gets all the laughs because he's a funny guy. He's always been a funny guy. That's established. Uh, and when he's on the beam, meaning Harry, um, he's quite funny indeed. He gets in a lot of good zingers. Um, and, of course, Craig Bierko has to play um, Alan Townsend and has to always be concerned. You know, and, and so that isn't much fun. Um, nothing wrong with what Craig Bierko is doing. He's really terrific in the part. It's just that there's no question that Harry Townsend is the showier part. And it, it's quite a show because Len Carrier was there doing what he does best. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Well, first of all, yeah, I was uh, interested. I found it interesting that the playwright's name is George Eastman, uh, but it is not the <laughs> Kodak, the founder of Eastman Kodak, who has been right. for a really long time. Uh, so let's just establish that. I um, I did want to see the play, if only for the cast and specifically for Len Cariou. I uh, I would agree with Peter largely. I think I think it's fair to say um, some more about the content without any spoiler. The main issue is whether or not Harry will be able to remain in his home or to go to some kind of a nursing home. Is he, is he you know, well enough to to stay, or is he just a danger to himself? Uh, they don't really. Uh, this brings me actually to an interesting point. I don't recall if there was any discussion of any kind of home health care. Do you, Peter? No, there wasn't. Right. Well, you know, because that's like one huge possibility that didn't seem to be discussed, or if it was, it certainly wasn't discussed at length. Uh, and I thought that was odd. And that brings me to my next point. This play, it's only two characters, two actors, Harry and his son, Alan. And I thought it would have been improved tremendously if they had added even one more character, whether it be a, 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 health, a home health person, a prospective home health care person. But it could have been a neighbor. It could have been a friend. Uh, it could have been a, a, another child. Uh, I just felt that it got to a point where hearing these two people talk just the two of them for all of that time. Um, and of course, it's partly the playwriting itself, but it just it just got really quite boring. Uh, and I thought that another energy needed to be injected into the play. So I think that that would have been a tremendous help. I, I'm not sure. Uh, and I guess Peter doesn't want to say specifically what his thoughts were for how the ending would be different. But uh, that's another possibility. But I, I really, really do. I've never felt that so much that it was so obvious to me that one more character would have helped greatly. And uh, another problem for me is I'm afraid I did not find the play anywhere near as amusing as Peter did. If it had been, um, then I think that would have been great because the the structure here, as I saw it, is basically that uh, Alan shows up at the beginning of the of the play. It's uh, it, it, you know at this what's described as a chalet in Vermont uh, on a late Friday afternoon in May, and so he and and his dad talking for a while. It's just uh, just very naturalistic, casual conversation about various things. Um, and then eventually, as the act goes on, it would, we get to the crux of the matter, which is, you know, 
Harry's condition and is he going to be able to stay in the house? And so at the end of Act One, there's kind of a, as I recall, this kind of a blow up. And then there's the intermission and then Act Two starts and then we're back to um, to a certain extent, you know, to to just the casual conversation. And then uh, and then the subject gets, you know, gets discussed at length again, and then the resolution happens. So I just felt that it was very repetitious. And uh, there were some, I have to say, um, you know, not to get into it, but there was some stumbling of lines from both of the actors. So that's another reason why the addition of a third person um, would have helped. This is a lot, a lot of lines for for two actors, especially one who is really quite elderly. So I think the playwright could have made it easier on his cast in that sense. And I, I do think there was a lot um, of worth in it, but I also feel like we've already heard this story several times. And if there wasn't going to be some new twist to it, uh, then maybe we didn't necessarily need to hear and see it again. Uh, directed by Karen Carpenter, by the way, and a very nice set. Um, in the, uh, I guess it's stage two at uh, New York City Center, stage two, uh, Manhattan Theater Club. That's set, by the way. I'm, I'm again trying to be as um, cagey as possible. Uh, that set should change somewhat in the last scene. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I think I, I think I just made a mistake. It It is New York City Center stage two, but it's not Manhattan Theater Club. Right. As That's Peter correct. said, it's a Dennis mm-hmm. Grimaldi production. Right. It's a rental. Okay, so that is um, Harry Townsend's last stand. We'll have a link to that in the show notes with all the information. Uh, next up, Peter, you got to see Ms. Trial. Uh, so tell us about this uh, this uh, play. I, I, I was confused at first about the spelling of it, so maybe you can help us there. Yes, um, it's not MIS trial, it's MS trial, um, the uh, abbreviation for um, a woman. And um, a woman, of course, is uh, very much at the center of this. Uh, And it has to do with sexual harassment. And we have a hotshot lawyer here who, um, by the way, uh, he's played by Depp Kirkland, and he got the part because he wrote the play. So um, he's a hotshot lawyer. He's even been on the cover of um, a major magazine and um, he's got a, um, a nephew who's working with him. Who's um, very meek and mild um, in the first act of the play, because uh, of course, when you're working with a famous man, even if he's your uncle, the fact remains that um, you feel like he's, knows everything and you know nothing comparatively speaking well um in comes this um woman into their office and eventually um <laughs> she's she's trying to work with them to win the case but uh that they're working on and they do win the case fine uh you might say you're giving too much away but this this is a very minor part of the play it's the fact that after the celebration um what happens is it a situation where the lawyer played by Depp Kirkland um does go a little too far or maybe a lot too far with um the uh, of the lawyer well uh unfortunately the intermission comes and ironically uh 
that's exactly when the play catches fire for a while, because now we're in an office um, where the deposition is happening and everybody is going into the questions and answers about what what really happened. It's a he said, she said thing, so on and so forth. Well, what it really comes down to is this is a play that's asking us, was she, and I hate this expression, but this is exactly what we're talking about, was she asking for it? That famous expression that uh, the responsibilities on the woman you know, that um, she uh, they try to establish that she's kind of slutty in her personal life and that type of thing. So I don't know about this play in 2019. I, I think that this issue has been solved, hasn't it? That no matter what the situation is, no matter how much the woman seems to and believe me, I'm saying seems to be asking for it. She has the right at any moment in time to say, stop. And that's it. It doesn't matter. This has been established um, as a social convention now for a long, long time. And so why this play is being done now with this issue is utterly beyond me. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm at a total loss where it comes to that. Alan Trinka plays the other lawyer and um, quite well. So... Um, and then um, in other roles, I really have to um, certainly applaud uh, both Janie Brookshire and uh, Christine Evangelista. Uh, they're quite wonderful as well. But good Lord, um, hasn't this issue been solved? Why do we have a play about this now? You know, it's interesting, Peter. We have, um, of course, sometimes plays take a while to develop. Sure. And musicals, sure. too. Sure. And, and sometimes we do have things that, that wind up being produced, and you're like, oh, I mean, really? Like maybe 10 years ago or five years ago. <laughs> but uh, they seem a little out of time, out of step with the times. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I certainly um, remember um, seeing... Uh, uh, in the 80s, a new situation where um, a woman um, had been raped and s somebody was uh, in the neighborhood. They were interviewing people in the neighborhood and the person um, said, well, what was she doing out at four o'clock in the morning? And the other person said this. She is not on trial. The guy is. You know, and again, a woman has every right to walk the streets at four o'clock in the morning if she wants to go out and get a, a, a piece of pizza and, and all right. that. You know, it's perfectly fine. And no matter what the situation is, even if the woman is um, enticing a man, she has the right to say no at any point, And that is the end of it. So I don't know why this play exists. OK, so Michael. You got uh, over to see more Yestons. Anything can happen in the theater. It's not actually more Yestons. It's a collection of more Yestons music, right? It's <laughs> well, it's very much more Yeston. It's all more Yeston all the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this. Yeah, this is a review that, as I mentioned earlier, had been done uh, briefly at the Triad, I guess, last year with a slightly different cast. And again, conceived and directed by Gerard Alessandrini, who's known and worked with Maury for years. And uh, I, I think since the, um, the uh, BMI workshop days. Uh, and Maury, of course, it needs no introduction to our listeners as the as the composer and lyricist of such shows as Titanic and Nine and several others that uh, he really is, I've always considered him one of my favorites. And he, I would say, is a, 
is like some other composer lyricists in being a real chameleon. He really adapts his style to the uh, to the various subject matter and uh, different requirements of the different stories that he musicalizes. Um, what's the, the, that phrase, you know, let content dictate form? He's very much uh, in that regard. Uh, another person like that who leaps to mind is Cy Coleman. Uh, and it's interesting because when you put the uh, the work of a person like Maury Yeston or Cy Coleman uh, into a review situation, it I guess it can in a way seem less cohesive than if it's, um, say, a team like Kander and Ebb or someone like Cole Porter or even a Sondheim who, uh, for all of their versatility, they maybe seem to have more of a, a – a, more of an identifiable style. Uh, I realize this is all very objective, uh, subjective, but um, but that's my thought here. Uh, so I so when you if when you see anything can happen in theater, the musical world of Maury Yes, in which you definitely should. Uh, I think you might have the thought that it's not. Um, terribly cohesive in that sense but that's not necessarily a negative i think it does show uh, this review does show the the tremendous range that maury has as both a composer and a lyricist and the songs here um you know i mean we have everything from cinema italiano uh, from the movie of nine to uh Love Can't Happen from Grand Hotel and the song New Words from In the Beginning. Um, several other numbers from Nine we have Call from the Vatican. And um, then there are some, uh, there's one sh song that was written specifically for this show. And then apparently four, I believe a total of four songs that had never been performed in public before. So you won't be getting um, just old stuff. Uh, there will be some new items to really delight and intrigue you. Um, the cast is terrific. Benjamin Eakley, Javon Ishan, Alex Getlin, Justin Keyes, and Mamie Paris. Um, all terrific. Mamie Paris has multiple Broadway credits and a truly phenomenal voice, including a, a killer soprano, which comes in very, very handy <laughs> in uh, some of these numbers, especially uh, new to this edition of the show. I asked Gerard because I wasn't sure if I didn't remember for certain if it was in the triad version, but um, there's only one bit from Titanic and it's an acapella version of uh, a section of the the song Godspeed Titanic that is done basically as the curtain call or after the curtain call. Uh, and it's in it, what sounds to me like five part harmony uh, with all, with all these people singing, um, you know, farewell, farewell, great ship Titanic. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And that's a place where maybe Paris just uh, on that, you know, that last note, uh, fortune's wings sings Godspeed to thee, uh, that, that high note there. She just really, really nailed it. Um, Justin Keys, I also have to single out because I enjoyed him very much. Um, not that long ago, was it was the last year or the year before in Jerry Springer, the opera, uh, as the guy in the diaper, 
Um, I remembered him from that. He made quite an impression in that. But he uh, here is just terrific in this show as well. He's the one who does that, uh, this hilarious comedy number called Salt and Pepper, uh, which I believe is just a standalone song because there's no show title written next to it in the program. Um, so he is really great. And the rest of the people too, Alex Gatlin has a beautiful, um, kind of a, almost a, a alto folk type voice very very beautiful and the other two Javon Ishan and Benjamin Eakley also have many moments to shine uh this is at the York um with music direction by Greg Jarrett and choreography by Jerry McIntyre um uh I I will say uh this is that the singers are mic'd with head mics and I think that this might be the first show that I've seen at the York with mics. Uh, I know they do the mufti. So they do. The, I know they do the muftis without mics. Right. Uh, maybe some of the other productions have had them. Uh, so you might, you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but it, it does assure that every single lyric comes through loud and clear. And I would not say it's over amplified. So that I just want to make, make a point about that. Um, Jerry McIntyre's choreography uh, is very wonderful and very extensive uh, and very fluid and, and, and adds a tremendous amount to this show. It's a great, great contribution. Uh, and finally, I think that uh, the set, the scenic design by James Morgan, is the most attractive that I've ever seen at New York. Uh, he created a false proscenium that looks, uh, it seems like it's modeled after the proscenium at Radio City. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those curved uh, mm -hmm. semicircular arches uh, that you would call them, obviously on a much smaller scale. But, um, and just that, uh, it just looks so elegant and so so classy uh and that's basically it for the set as i mean there were there's almost nothing in terms of props or, or any other kind of set piece but it just was a lovely lovely uh backdrop you know for the for the action and there's a, a grand or a baby grand piano uh more or less center stage upstage um and that that's the set, <laughs> but it, it just looked very, 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 very classy. So I would say that this is something that you should definitely check out. doesn't have a long run because uh, as we mentioned earlier, um, it will be followed at, at the York by Forbidden Broadway. So try to get to see one or both of them. And I think you will enjoy them very much about new words. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of people don't know this song because uh, the show from which it originally came called one, two, three, four, five. And then in the beginning and even history repeats itself. Um, was Lehman Engel's favorite song of any that he ever heard in the workshop. Now, you have to understand that the workshop started in 1961. He did it until his death about 20 years later. So he heard a lot of, he heard a lot of songs during that period of time. Yeah. And this was his favorite. And when the memorial service was held for him, this was the song that ended the program because it was his favorite song. It's a great idea for a song. Tremendous. Mm -hmm. And I dare say that uh, while being a parent will help you appreciate it more, you don't have to be a parent to really see its worth. It's a beautiful melody, too. So um, so just the chance to to um, hear new words uh, is one that should be taken. 
And this show also has, I should mention, uh, a song from Maury Yeston's Phantom, which many people <laughs> uh, have always said uh, that they feel is better than the Lloyd Webber one. Uh, and the song is Home, which uh, the full company sings right at the end, right before the Godspeed Titanic, which I just mentioned. All right. So we will have a, a link to that in the show notes, uh, and we can check that out um, before absolutely Forbidden Broadway comes in, The Next Generation. So, Peter, you got over to Second Stage to see The Underlying Chris, uh, the new Will Eno play. So tell us about that. Well, it's always going to be a, a wild and woolly ride when it comes to a Willino play, and he is a taste that a lot of people do not have and do not want to have. Um, but this, I think, is one of his more accessible works. So uh, I'll tell you, though, <laughs> what's really impressive to me is the fact that when you are successful as a playwright, and indeed, although Willino has um, not fared well commercially on Broadway, the fact remains that he is now a name. He's an established presence. Um, he certainly has done extraordinarily well in a number of uh, arenas. So here he is writing a play with 11 people in it. 11. Um, and uh, they have to pay for six understudies too, for that matter. Um, that's a lot uh, to put on a payroll. But Again, you know, when when they want you, they want you. And um, second stage, uh, obviously, and the center theater group, too, by the way, is involved with this as well. So when they want you, they want you. So what is this about? Well, this takes us from um, uh, uh, early birth uh, to death uh, of a of a person named Chris. I'm not saying a man named Chris. I'm not saying a woman named Chris because it's very fluid. Um, what happens here is that uh, we see one scene with a man named Chris, another scene with a woman named Chris, another scene with a man named Chris, another woman named Chris, so on and so forth. So it's very our towny in a very um, specific way um, because it does tell us about how we should appreciate life and all that goes with that. Ah, well, the difference between our town and the underlying Chris is a profound one. And the thing is that in our town, of course, we stay with the same character. Uh, we stay with Emily. We stay with George. We see them throughout the play. And as a result, we can bond with them. And this is a problem that um, that dogged the musical Hallelujah Baby back in uh, 1967, as well as Love Life, which is coming up at Encores. And I think a lot of people have the same problem with Love Life, that when you have a character and the character is uh, supposed to age and um, it's and the person really doesn't age or it becomes a different character, you cannot bond with that character. Um, so you never get emotionally involved with Chris because it's not the same person. So while the points about growing older, growing up, um, the difficulties in life, all that go with that are certainly good issues. And Will Eno tackles them on uh, very squarely. The idea that he wants to make it universal um, <laughs> uh, short cuts, uh, short changes us on specifics. So, um, so you might enjoy watching this play, but you won't get the emotional, um, resonance. Uh, the tears will not flow the way they do in the third act of our town. 
even though uh, both plays have the same uh, type of agenda. So um, I, I think everybody in it is quite fine. Um, certainly Elizabeth McKay, who I, um, who I think is a wonderful actress, uh, does very well here. And Michael Countryman, who I think is a terrific actor, uh, does very well here as well. Hannah Cabell is in it as well. And um, so, but really, um, I think you'll be entertained. I don't think you'll be moved. Okay. So that's the uh, underlying Chris, and that's at Second Stage. The Second Stage, that's the 43rd Street, right? That's mm-hmm. not their mm-hmm. other, uh, their, the one of many theaters has taken Second Stage, uh, reaches out across uh, Manhattan like Starbucks. This is the one with the squishy seats. The squishy seats and the bank vault that they keep. Yeah, that's all, right. right. They keep all the money of Second Stage in that bank vault, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a great company. I hope it's full. I, I hope they yeah. need another bank vault. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> so they keep Broadway's riches in that bank vault. That's what we should say there. All right. Um, so, Michael, you got over to 59 East 59, the theater that tells you exactly where it is, mm-hmm. uh, to see One November Yankee. So tell us about One November Yankee. That's an interesting title. I have a theory on what the title means, but why don't you tell us? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is, a, I would say, a very flawed but very intriguing play that I'm glad that I saw, written and directed by Joshua Ravitch. Uh, what is your guess, James, as to what One November Yankee means? Uh, uh, One November Yankee, um, I'm thinking that it's the, the phonetic al- alphabet. November stands for N and Y stands for, Yankee stands for Y, so it's 1NY. Uh, but I mean, I'm just guessing. Like, remember the cockpit, uh, cockpit voice recorder play where they, uh, for many years ago, at 15, 20 years ago, when they played the uh, black box, re- they they staged the black box recordings yes. of the plane crashes, uh, Charlie Victor Romeo or something like that. That's well, you're, you're the second thing is correct. Yes, these are supposed to be uh, the call letters of uh, of an aircraft. One November Yankee. Mm-hmm. So tell us about it. Well, it. Uh, I I wanted to say at the start, I I don't feel I can discuss this play without spoilers. So, if you think you are going to see it, I mean, I don't think they would be spoilers in the sense that there would be no point in seeing the play uh, because there's still a lot to it. But uh, it's well, you'll understand why when I start talking about it now, which is going to include a lot of spoilers. Uh, the cast of this play is consists of two people, Harry Hamlin and Stephanie Powers. And they play uh, three sets of siblings. Uh, When we first see them, Harry Hamlin is an artist who is exhibiting at MoMA. And uh, his... And Stephanie Powers is his sister, who is a curator at MoMA. And so she has set this up. So uh, one of the issues is you know is this nepotism and is you know is how much are we supposed to how much credence are we supposed to give to that and blah 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 uh so that's one of the issues and uh he has created this artist has created a uh conceptual artwork i guess you would say that is a, a fairly realistic representation of a small plane that has crashed and it's meant to um 
be an artwork memorializing and and I guess commenting on planes that crashed and were never found, uh, of which there have been numerous instances over the years. And in particular, um, we are told that uh, there's one uh, particular plane crash that had happened about five years earlier uh, in which the plane was never found and the victims were never found. And uh, that is what the artist is is memorializing here. And that was his inspiration for this artwork. Um, so that's the first scene. And we see the artist and the sister discussing it. And we learn a little bit about them and, and their relationship, etc. Then we have a flashback about five years to the actual crash of this actual plane that is that inspired the artwork. And uh, we see that the occupants of that plane who survived the crash were another uh, brother and sister. Uh, and we, so they emerge from the crash and we learn about them and we see what's going to happen if they're going to get out or not. Uh, although we kind of know that from what we've seen in the first scene. Um, then there is a flash forward to another scene with yet another pair of siblings, brother and sister. And we're now back basically in the present day or, uh, and a, and this pair of siblings has just found the, the crash site uh, that is the same, the crash of the same plane that has been, memorialized and which inspired the artwork that we saw in the first scene. And then the last, the fourth and last scene of the play, we, we come back to MoMA and see the uh, original pair of siblings and they discover in the new, they, they read a news item saying uh, uh, that the, in fact, the crash site has just been discovered. So I, I hope that's not too confusing, but mm -hmm. it, it is very intriguing when you, see it unfolding and especially the fact that I, I think that it's so interesting that the playwright decided to focus it on uh on siblings rather than uh, husband and wife boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever um i i found that very very interesting uh there is uh, a lot that happens in terms of the plot that did not seem very realistic. So I'm not sure uh, that you necessarily want to judge this play on a realistic uh, level. And if you do, then you might find it wanting, but if you think of it as more conceptual in the same way that this artwork is supposed to be, I think you'll find it a lot better. I very much enjoyed seeing uh, Harry Hamlin and Stephanie powers in it. I, um, Never, I have never seen. No, uh, that's not true. I, I, I did see Harry Hamlin on stage once in, I believe, in 1996. He did Summer in Smoke uh, on Broadway, and uh, he also did a stint in Chicago as Billy Flynn. But I did not see him in that. And his only other Broadway credit was Awake and Sing back in 1984, which I also missed. Uh, so he doesn't do a lot of theater, but he was really wonderful in this. He has a, um, I always thought from his TV work that he has a wonderful voice, uh, a really beautiful speaking voice. And in fact, he has done classical theater. So I'm sure he's probably very successful at that as well. But I, 
uh, I enjoyed this rare opportunity of seeing him and also Stephanie Powers. And the only time I'd ever seen her before was as the lead in the Paper Mill Playhouse production of Applause. Uh, so this was a very different uh, type of assignment for her. And both of these uh, actors, I have to say, did an excellent job of delineating these uh three different characters that they played. Um, so that, so I think the casting was very well done and uh, it's, it's a very, very solid production by the Delaware theater company over at 59 East 59. And I recommend it um, despite, uh, as I said, plot elements that, which might have you, thinking, well, that wouldn't really happen. Uh, there's a couple of those, but that's not the main point of the play. There's also, uh, well, I, I, yeah, again, I guess this might be a spoiler. At the end of the play, uh, the reviews start coming in for this artwork that's on display at MoMA. And um, first we hear a rave, rave, rave review from the New York Times. Uh, and then we hear... Uh, a very negative review from what we are told is page six. Now, first of all, I'm not aware of reviews on page six, uh, certainly not anything like a full length review. So I don't know what the author was getting at with that. Is it possible that he doesn't really know what page six is or just used it as a, a, a term that people would recognize? But uh, I thought that was odd. Uh, but also I felt that, um, and here we go, you know, rewriting other people's plays. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt that the order of those reviews should have been reversed. Um, what happens is that uh, the the siblings are on stage and they both, read uh the rave review from the times then the sister goes off and uh, for a moment and she says you you know you meet me downstairs and we're going to have a drink to celebrate and then the artist uh on his own finds the quote-unquote page six review which is very very negative and he reads that through and it just seemed to me um that it would have been better if it was reversed and he was alone when he read the rave review that's probably going to make his career rather than destroy it. So um, I, I think uh, I would have the nerve to suggest <laughs> to the playwright that, that maybe perhaps, um, you know, that if this is done again, that he might consider reversing those. I just thought it would have been a much better ending and more, um, I think more in line with the, with the theme of the play, which is sort of about perseverance and resurrection. So that's what I thought. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, One November Yankee at 5090-59. We'll have a link to all the information in the show notes. So persecution and resurrection. Peter, you got over to the Sheen Center and saw the Gospel of John. Uh, So why don't you tell us about that? That's what it is, the Gospel of John. Ken Jennings is there. Uh, He's memorized uh, the entire Gospel of John. On, and he tells us um, wow. soup to nuts. That's what he does. Of course, this has been done before. Um, this type of thing has been done before. Um, Alec McCowan did St. Mark's Gospel, and Max McLean has done many Gospels uh, over time. Um, some at the Playwrights Theater of New Jersey, now called the Writers Theater of New Jersey, where John Petrowski has been uh, the artistic director for a long, long time, and he's directed Ken Jennings. Now, Ken Jennings' name uh, may be familiar to many 
because, of course, he was the original Toby, Tobias, in uh, Sweeney Todd way back when, 40 years ago. Um, and uh, so it's fun to see um, him, uh, for those who missed Sweeney Todd 40 years ago because they weren't around or were too young, it's sort of fun to see uh, him. Now, uh, uh, it sounds boring, doesn't it? I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess there are certain uh, people who will um, be natively interested in this because um, they're into uh, Bible stories, and certainly this qualifies. And yet, um, <laughs> Ken Jennings really makes it come to life. And I have to say, one of the wonderful things about it is that um, it's very cleverly staged in this small uh, place, um, the Sheen Center. Now, if you've been to the Sheen Center, you know there are two spaces there. And um, this is in the smaller space. And um, that's that's pretty fair to um, to have it there. But there's something that's in there. Um, I don't want to be too specific. There's something in there that indeed would um, not necessarily be something you would um, think would be used, but it is used. And I think that's really quite nice that it is being used. Um, and so this wasn't just perfunctory direction by John Petrowski. It really is substantially stronger than that. And I think that um, he really deserves so much credit for using the space in an imaginative way. Uh, that said, I also have to um, say the lighting is terrific, a wonderful job of lighting that really um, makes the you can tell the lighting designer really, really, really paid attention to the words. And um, I think that's really quite uh, wonderful that um, that happened. It's um, about an hour and a half, something like that. Um, uh, it, chances are you know the story and as a result you'll know exactly where you are in the story and how much time is left in the story um <laughs> so uh, so but really um hats off to ken jennings um who really does a, a tremendous job and of course you always have to be so impressed when somebody memorizes an entire text um it, it's quite an achievement and uh, ken jennings makes it an achievement Okay, so that is the Gospel of John. Um, next up, I have in my notes that Michael and Peter went to Marriage Story, but I don't know anything about this. So, Michael, you want to start us with Marriage Story? Oh, really? You haven't heard about it? Well, I, I've heard about the Netflix special, but I've not heard about the play. Well, and I'm assuming you guys are not doing the Netflix review. Oh, no, 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 no. This is the Netflix movie. It is. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I, you know, you two never talk about television, so it was very confusing to me. <laughs> well, well it's, I it's saw in the it theater in the theater, too, isn't it? Yeah, I saw it at the Paris Theater, which, uh -huh. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the one of the great parts of this story is that is Netflix that bought the Totally Paris. unexpectedly, you know, and against all... Totally unexpectedly. Yeah, I mean, the, things like this just don't happen. Netflix uh, has saved the Paris theater from the jaws of disappearance and will be running it uh, from now on. It uh, has bought it, I guess, and it will be, or, or long-term lease, and will be running it uh, for to show their own their own product as, mm -hmm. as well as special events they have said so it it is uh as we speak it is the last 
single screen theater in in uh, I'm not sure if it's all of New York City or just Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we used to have so many of them, and and mm-hmm. I tell you, when when others have closed, like the Ziegfeld, which I don't even want to get into that because it just makes my blood boil, mm-hmm. but. Um, I always said, well, why doesn't a, a company uh, like that buy the theater and, and use it for, we do need places for big starry premieres of, of movies and uh, you don't want to have them in a multiplex for heaven's sake. Um, so uh, reason has prevailed and Netflix, I, I can't thank them enough for preserving this wonderful theater and i'm sure they're going to renovate it. it it could use a little bit of a renovation but as it is it's it's just wonderful and so i i would have gone just to go and support them but aside from that marriage story is a wonderful wonderful movie uh by noah Baumbach at with adam driver and scarlett johansson and it's basically showing us the the dissolution of a marriage of two people who really love each other but for whatever reason they, 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 they cannot stay together, even though they have a child, a very cute child, by the way. Um, so it's, it's very well written and very well acted. And it has, uh, I knew it had one Sondheim song in it because there's been a lot of press about the fact that um, almost towards the end, Adam Driver, who is not, known as a musical theater or a musical performer sings being alive from company which certainly certainly relates to the subject at hand uh, of marriage and or divorce someone to hold you too close someone to hurt you too deep someone to sit in your chair so I, I expected that was coming, but I, it was still very effective to me because I didn't know exactly how it would happen. I, I do have to say uh, there's another Sondheim song in the movie mm-hmm. just before that. And actually, I think it was a tremendous mistake to include that. It's you could drive a person crazy because as soon as I saw that, it just seemed to me that it was making it them both seem like placement. Uh, rather than something that was occurring naturally. And I, I don't think that we needed to have um, uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, her, the woman who plays her mother, Julie Haggerty, and the woman who plays her sister sing You Could Drive a Person Crazy uh, at, a, at a party in their home, I believe it was. I don't know what it was there for and i don't think it added anything and also um i have to say they they cut they edited the song in such Mm. a way that it made the lyrics nonsensical so if you're going to do that to a sondheim song i would say really 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 better not to have it at all um (laughs) so i think that was a big 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 misstep and i wish that noah bombach hadn't done that but uh, it was very wonderful to see and hear being alive sung in this context and quite well uh, by Adam Driver, I might say. Um, I'm told that there are other uh, current or very recent examples of Sondheim songs in movies, including um, uh, what is it? Oh, uh, Send in the Clowns in Joker. Uh-huh. Uh, I, did, you, did either of you see Joker? Mm-mm. Apparently, sending the clowns is in it, and then um, 
what is it? Uh, there's a new Daniel Craig movie that apparently has a Sondheim song in it. So I think, uh, I don't know the details, but I think one of Sondheim's people must be actively pursuing these, uh, these opportunities. And, and certainly, uh, you know, overall, I think that's a wonderful thing. I, I just uh, object to this, that specific inclusion of you could drive a person crazy in this particular movie. Uh, well, uh, one could effectively argue that, um, <laughs> that because we're dealing with uh, a divorce that, um, these people are driving each other crazy. So maybe there's some meaning there, yeah. by the way, I think it's terribly sung. Um, <laughs> oh. oh no. Yes. <laughs> three yes, three actresses uh, do a terrible job with it. And when you mentioned the cuts in it, um, uh, when I was listening, I, I nodded my head because um, the Bobby, 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 Bobby section is not in it. And I thought, well, yes, because uh, who's Bobby? I mean, nobody's going to know who Bobby is. So I can see why they cut that. But at the end, <laughs> my hobby and I'm giving him up. I mean, you know, so that made no sense to me why they I guess they just wanted to make the song shorter. And, um, and that was the reason behind that. So, by the way, this movie should not be called Marriage Story. It should be called Divorce Story because, I mean, it really has nothing to do with a marriage per se and has everything to do with divorce. And um, so keep that in mind. Um, those of you who are going through divorces now or recently went through them or have never gotten over them, this may not be the movie for you. Um, it could be very painful. For me personally, I'll tell you, I appreciated my ex-wife so much more as a result of seeing this picture because she was uh, tremendous um, when we were having these difficulties and tried to do the right thing at every opportunity. So um, my hat is off to Lily Felicia, who still uses that name. And um, thank you, Lily. And you know, the, the, the last five years is a terrible first date movie. <laughs> yes, yes, it yes. is. <laughs> Marriage story. Uh, I'm going to warn you. Uh, uh, this the singing of being alive was very, very moving and effective. But then there's something that happens. I guess right after that, a scene that actually Adam Driver has with the wonderful actor who plays his young son, and I can't tell you what happens. But I think that you're going to find that you're going to be tearing up when that scene occurs because it was so beautifully written and so well acted and, and so, so well conceived. Um, the, the moment that actually brings us to tears, I was, I was really quite overwhelmed. The kid, by the way, is named Ozzy, A-Z-H-Y Robertson. Thank you. And he is really terrific. This is not an easy thing for a kid to do. So and, natural. Um, and, so yeah, natural. Exactly. And um, not a smart-ass kid, not written that way, nothing like that at all. His dialogue is, is very, very secure. And um, uh, both Adam Driver – well, Adam Driver plays a theater director, uh, and Scarlett Johansson plays an actress, so – I think that many of our listeners will find a lot of, uh, uh, you know, show busy insider stuff that's that's amusing as well. Wallace Shawn is is one of the actors in it. Uh, and there are several other faces that you'll recognize as well. All right. So that is uh, an unusual television review. 
or theater <laughs> or movie yeah, review. Yeah, we, we, we both really. <laughs> you were at the you were at the uh, Paris, which uh, I guess you can now, if you can't make it to New York to see it in New York at the Paris, you'll see it on uh, Netflix as well. And isn't it interesting on that note how that uh, barrier is almost completely breaking down? Isn't it? Look at uh, the Irishman. Right. Yeah, the Irishman. Uh, You know, I mean, remember, uh, you know, uh, at least two of us are old enough to remember a time when (laughs) something something would be uh, in the theaters, in movie theaters, and then it would be years, Mm -hmm. you know, before it would be on television. Sure. Uh, Before it would come out on VHS. Yes, either one, yeah. Uh, One of the early Leonard Maltin books, his guides uh, in the – in the introduction says, and don't ask about Gone with the Wind when it's going to be on TV. You know, it's not it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. And now, of course, it's a pretty regular event on TCM. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, there's a really, really great uh, podcast called um, KCRW's The Business with Kim Masters. Uh, and they talk all the time about how Hollywood is pushing back on the streaming services, Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and all the all, all the Hulu and all, all the streaming services and that the creators are really unhappy about uh, people watching their movies, their masterpieces of art in uh, on small screens, even a telephone. People, you know, people are watching their uh their iPhones and Android devices are are their are their new television screens and they they'll watch the Irishman and De Niro has said do not, do not watch the Irishman on your phone and <laughs> it's interesting about this uh, uh this fight between Hollywood writers and directors and the streaming services and uh I suppose that's going to come to our forefront too as NT Live and Broadway HD and the others uh come to play. Did any did either one of you get a chance to uh see SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, SpongeBob no. the musical on uh, Nickelodeon last night? I'm sure that that's going to be floating around and uh I got an invite from one of the uh, press reps to go see it on at the AMC on 42nd Street this week. I didn't know if either one of you had taken the time to do that. No, I've spent my time with SpongeBob. <laughs> I would love to see it again. again. I would love to see it again. I really enjoyed it. And, and I remember that one of my main problems with it was that it was so loud, but I presumably can adjust the volume if I see it, if I see it at home, you know? Uh, so I would like to, uh, one of our, uh, friends Robbie Roselle I, I, I apparently watched the TV version and really loved it and said uh, Ethan Slater should have gotten a Tony Award and maybe he'll get an Emmy in compensation <laughs> oh that's interesting alright so that wraps it up for our reviews in the morning um, we did do want to note that uh, the passing of a great Broadway actor Ron Lieben happened uh, a couple days ago and Michael did you have something to say about Ron well he was phenomenal as Roy Cohn in the original production of Angels in America, both parts. Uh, I think anyone who saw that will agree. It it was just a, a spectacular tour de force portrayal that uh, stood out even in, in the general excellence of that that production with all of those other amazing people in it. I looked up Mr. Liebman and his first Broadway credit was in 1963 
in something called Dear Me, The Sky Is Falling. Uh, and then he was in a lot of other shows over the years. He was in We Bombed in New Haven <laughs> mm. in 1968. Um, and I guess the first time I saw him was I Ought to Be in Pictures in 1980. Uh, then also in I saw him in Doubles in 1985. And I want to single out his performance in Rumors, uh, in 1988, which uh, he played Lenny Gantz in Rumors, uh, which is uh, a Neil Simon play, which I don't believe was very well received and did not run very long. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And he, Mr. Liebman, was hysterical in it. So that's uh, something that I think of as really special. I, I guess we always uh, hold a special place in our hearts for things uh, that were not around long and were not hits and uh, shows that we saw performances that we saw that that a lot of other people did not get to see. So that, uh, in a way, uh, to me, that's even more special than his Roy Cohn. But that, you know, that that will be his what he's remembered for forever. Uh, and deservedly so. He he was beyond phenomenal in that in Angels in America. And uh Yes. <laughs> Michael, uh, I, I hate to correct, but um, actually, uh, I think one of the reasons you feel that rumors didn't run long is because that was in the time when Neil Simon plays would run now and forever. And actually, rumors was around for more than a year. It played 535 performances. I know it doesn't seem it, but oh. uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it's really bizarre, but, you know, uh, compared to things like Barefoot in the Park and uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, uh, which ran over a thousand performances, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems... Um, it pales in comparison. I will say this, by the way, about rumors, and that is the fact I'm amazed every time I go looking to see shows out of town, how many uh, theaters do do rumors. It doesn't seem to me uh, to be a top-notch Neil Simon title, but you can't uh, prove it by community theaters, which uh, do it all the time. Ron Liebman. Uh, yes, indeed. Phenomenal is Roy Cohn. Of course, uh, he's the one who had to do it first and um, did it um, really spectacularly well. Um, I also want to say um, he's very funny in a movie called Where's Papa, which is an outrageous comedy, outrageous beyond belief. Um, not as outrageous as the novel on which it's based, but nevertheless, um, if you want uh, a real hoot, um, look up the movie Where's Papa uh, from 1970, George Siegel, Trish Vanderveer, and Rodden Liebman. Um, so um, don't miss that. Don't miss that opportunity to uh, to see that one. Yeah, thanks for the correction. I I did. Just I know. Did not remember it. That uh, yeah, but, but really, I understand entirely. Um, it's <laughs> because I was I was on IBDB um, while you were talking uh, to see if there was anything else that I I didn't catch him until I ought to be in pictures too. Um, mm. So uh, those other ones. Um, were either before my theater going time or um, I, I, I wasn't in the right place at the right time. But um, in fact, when you said short running and I saw November 17th, 1988, and then saw February 24th, um, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, it's only three. And then I noticed, <laughs> whoa, you know, wait, it wasn't the following year, it was the year after that. So, um, yeah, if somebody had told me that it only ran from November to February, I would have said yes, too. It didn't seem to me it ran that long. But and anyway. and looking it up, I see that it ran long enough for uh, Mr. Liebman to be replaced by Greg Malavy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, so, well, uh, sorry about that, but uh, but anyway, he was great in it. <laughs> yes, he was. Yes, he was hilarious. <laughs> Okay, so that wraps it up for today. We were very concerned this morning that we wouldn't have enough to talk about. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> yet again, we are here at the yeah. end of our uh, broadcast for today. So before we get on to the trivia question, I'd like to remind everybody that you can, you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to find us. Our Heart Radio places, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you're going to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter for Michael and for me uh, can be found in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today and I have a little uh, trailer here for Marriage Story from Netflix so you can check that out as well so Peter do you have an answer uh, or actually no, a new question right. for uh, this week's trivia three of his musicals reached Broadway the third of the three is being performed in New York right now the second one will open in the city early in 2020, while the first will open in late 2020. He also wrote the background music for a film version of a famous play that's had no fewer than four Broadway revivals. Who's the writer? What are the three musical? And what's the name of the famous play? All right. If you have a, uh, an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 I've made me alive. 